This past week, I uh, ran into a friend of mine whose name is Miriam, and Miriam is, like me, a deeply religious person. And so we got to talking about religion. If, uh, if you spend any time with me away from here, you might recognize that's something I'm not just passionate about on Sunday, but it's a big part of my life. And I don't say that in a bragging way, but it just is. And I like people and I like cultures, and so I spend time talking to, to Miriam from time to time. In our conversations, they often come to religious points. And there we differ because as I will quote the Bible, she will quote the Quran. As we conversed this week and I shared just the hope that Christ has given to me through his word, she began to quote the Quran again. She quoted one passage that I heard before and I want to share it with you this morning. It's chapter 17, verse 88 or the equivalent of that. This is what it says. It's supposedly Allah speaking, and he says this. Say, if all mankind and the jinn would come together to produce the like of this Quran, they could not produce even its like, though they exerted all and their strength in aiding one another. This is a, a bit of an apologetic that the, the Muslims would use here that, that Muhammad allegedly received from Allah to give to his disciples. If they could produce one book, like that of the Quran, and it would prove that this was not a divine book after all, that anybody could come up with it. As time goes on, apparently throughout the Quran, they, nobody ever took that challenge up. And so uh, apparently Muhammad or Allah lowered the bar a little bit, and they said, okay, how about this? How about if anybody could invent even just 10 chapters that are as special and as beautiful as the Quran? That's in chapter 11, verse 13. Still, nobody answered that apparently. We'll talk about maybe why not in just a moment. But then there's one more given, and it says this, and if, and if all of you are in doubt about what I have revealed to my servant, bring a single chapter like it and call your witnesses beside God if you are truthful. So finally, he says, okay, if you can just even bring one chapter that would compare to that of the Quran, of any chapter, then that will, that will prove that, there is, that what Allah has given to Muhammad is, is actually not that at all. It's made up. The shortest chapter in the Quran has only three verses. And so the challenge is pretty easy. The bar is pretty low. Can you make one chapter, three verses, that are equal to the Quran? According to Muhammad, if you could, then you would discredit Muhammad and the Quran. I think what's most interesting about this challenge is that beauty can oftentimes be subjective. So the very thing that they're saying to do is then graded by somebody who would not appreciate if you could, right? And so the person that's giving the test, I think, would be a little bit subjective, as well as the person deciding and, and even writing whatever it is that they would submit. So what you think is beautiful to you, may not be beautiful to somebody else. Sarah and I realized that as we began to have children. As time went on, we thought our children were beautiful. We always did. And we wondered in our minds, are our children as pretty as we think they are? And then, we've been married now for 15 years. We look back over our oldest and then our second, and we think, you know what? They are not as pretty as we thought they were. And maybe we think they're beautiful now. Maybe that will wash away as well. I don't know. But beauty is, to some degree, in the eye of the beholder. But there are some standards across the board that we can use as metrics to judge beauty. 
both in creation and in art. And those metrics would be maybe simplicity. Oftentimes we find beauty in simple presentations, creations, recitation, whatever. We find beauty in simplicity. We find beauty in symmetry. We find beauty in pattern. We find beauty in intelligence. We find beauty in surprise. We find beauty in transformation. And all of these components are how we grade art, literature, and creation. And so as we consider this challenge given by Muhammad, I want to offer another piece of ironic information. As we were talking, me and Mariam, I began to think about Isaiah and the sermon that I would bring to you this Sunday, today. I began to think how beautiful Isaiah 53 is. It's a work of art. It's so much more than that. But it is in its just simplest form. It is just beauty. It's both poetry and prophecy woven together in a wonderful tapestry that both feeds our souls and informs us as we go along as Christians. And it has, as the song we sang just a moment ago, it's been something that we have been nurtured by for hundreds of years, thousands. So I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and specifically chapter 53. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have the, the Word of God available on the screen. You can follow along there. I'm going to say this. Isaiah 53 is prophetic in the sense that it seems as though the chapter was written at the very foot of the cross. It seems as though it was written at the very foot of the cross. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Maybe it was. Well, it wasn't. 700 years 700 years before Jesus Christ ever walked this earth as a man. This chapter was written. And so it's prophetic. And if nothing else, it's just beautiful in that it's prophetic. But more than that, the syntax and the verbiage, they're wonderful. And as I said, the structure, even the structure of the, lay- the layout of the passages and how they weave together are also speaking non-verbally and are beautiful as well, just adding to the, to the majesty and the masterpiece of information, all working together. And what's more is, and this is interesting, the book of Isaiah, this chapter 53, was given 1,400, 1,300 years at least before the Quran was. And so preemptively, God is saying and demonstrating that there's an, here's your answer, Muhammad. Here's your answer, Allah. Here's beauty in far more than, than three verses. And that's not to say that the word of God is only beautiful in Isaiah 53. But as it were this morning, that is where we find ourselves. But before we dive into the text, I want to prepare you um, so that the reading will be more fruitful. And so at the time uh, of this um, reading... Well, we won't get into that. Let's say this. As we, as we read, you'll see a couple things. First, you'll see this, uh, this statement, this title. It's my servant. My servant. And the identity of, the, of my servant will work through the, today. And that's what this chapter is about, chapter 53. And there's two main buckets uh, that the terms, as we read through here, that they'll be either placed in one or the other. Uh, and they'll both be describing my servant. One of the categories or buckets will be that he is exalted. So as we read these different descriptions and, 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 uh, and explanations of his actions, 
what took place, it'll either go into the, to the bucket that describes his exaltation or his suffering. So chapter 53, book of Isaiah, it's about God's servant, my servant, and it, it speaks to his exaltation and it speaks to his suffering. Let's work, let's work, with, or work through the pa- passage this morning and before we do, let's read it. I we'll actually begin reading in chapter 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, and like a, young, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied." And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressions or transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, again, we come to you and we ask that you would enlighten us as we look at your word. Pray that we would not just be struck by the beauty, but that you would truly feed us this morning. Jesus, the fact that you were pierced for our transgressions as your people, you were crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that was for us was brought upon you. And because of that, you've brought us peace and by your wounds we are healed. 
Jesus, this is why we worship you today. You loved us before we loved you. And you brought us peace with God, your Father. So we make much of you, God. We pray that these things would be done to your glory alone. We ask them in the name of your Son. Amen. As you ponder the meaning of the passage this morning, as you weigh out this identity of my servant and then the explanations about my servant, no doubt questions are going to arise. Questions like, why, why all this suffering? Why is there so much pain in this passage? You might ask that question this morning. You might ask, who's being exalted and why? What right do people have to exalt one another? You might be asking questions like, when will all this take, pla- uh, take, take place? Or when will all this happen? The most important question, though, I, I believe this morning is as to the identity of my servant. As to the identity of my servant. And so I think as we begin to work through that, I think that God will enlighten us and bring clarity to the passage. And so let's begin right there. If you were to unroll all of Scripture like a carpet, like a roll of carpet that had been rolled up for some time, and you unroll it, and as you look across it, no doubt there would be ripples and high spots. If you were to get down and see those high spots, I believe they'd all line up. And I want to spell out and and point to a couple of those high spots in Scripture. The first one would be be Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's where we first hear about the gospel, that, that God is going to send a deliverer, and he will crush the head of the serpent. It's a high spot. If you were to go a little bit farther, you'd get into Genesis chapter 12, and God calls out Abram out of, the Ur, out of Ur of Chaldees, and he makes a covenant with him, and he says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you and your descendant. Those, those two high spots begin to line up. You begin to see, see a theme and a trajectory on those two spots. If we were to move a little bit uh, farther through Scripture, we'd come to the book of 2 Samuel. And there in chapter 7, Specifically, verse 16, I want to read to you what God says to King David. He says, In your house, your kingdom, verse 16, shall be made sure forever before me. Wait, what? God tells King David that his throne will be made sure forever before me. Well, maybe he's just being, you know, using bold language here, strong language. Then the sentence after says, your throne shall be established forever. Forever. What a promise. Yahweh would send a deliverer through the line of of Abraham, and he would bless all the families of the earth, and through the line of David, he would reign as king, listen, forever. As these passages begin to line up and we begin to see them all together, it sends, like I said, a trajectory that trajectory finds, its, uh, finds on its path Isaiah 53. What's the connection here? We'll see in just a moment. Just two weeks ago, we concluded our Kings and Kingdoms series. I hope it was a helpful series for you. I know that it was for me. One thing that I know I walked away from the series with is the, just a, a keen understanding of how fallen the Israelites really were and how misguided they were by their kings. Remember, Israel, out of 20 kings, had zero good kings. Zero. Not one. And the southern tribes had four out of 20. That's not good. Right? So we, we, we read of, Ab- uh, of Ahab and how wicked of a king that he was. Now he led the people to do terrible, wicked things. And at the, uh, at the time of Isaiah, when he's writing this, there are many kings that he had actually seen there. 
One particular king was Manasseh, a wicked, ungodly king. Actually, uh, it's been told to us that Isaiah was actually sawn in half under the order of Manasseh with a wooden saw. This is killing the Lord's man, killing the prophet of God. This is how terrible the times were. This is a king that sat on David's throne. So imagine being a student of the word, as it were. Knowing the promises of God, beginning in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7. And then experiencing and living in the, in the time of Isaiah, the brokenness. And recognizing that, no, this is not the fulfillment of the promise. Not saying, God, you're not going to do it, but I know that this is not the fulfillment of your promise. These, these kings are not righteous. They're not deliverers. They're not helping things. This is where Isaiah finds himself. This is where we are as, as we read. You also should know that the book of Isaiah is divided into two parts. The first 39 chapters are all about the destruction, the coming destruction and deportation of Israel and Judah. They're going to be taken from their homes. They're going to be defeated, many of them killed. They're going to be taken from their homes. Their culture almost destroyed, hanging on by a thread. March to a foreign land full of darkness and paganness. To some degree they may feel at home, but for others not so much. This is the time that they live in. Can you imagine the, the spiritual climate, the morale, just the, the struggle that they're going through, the people of God, the remnant? No hope, as it seemed. Difficult times ahead in the past, and difficult times in the present. I imagine as they marched away, as, after being deported and, and, and taken to Assyria or Babylon, I imagine them calling out. Those who know the truth, those who knew the promises, calling out and saying, God, where are you? Can you hear us? Where's the seed of David? Abraham, where, where's the deliverer that is supposed to come through Abraham? God, you promised. Imagine that that's what's on their hearts as they are carried away, even in their sinfulness. Recognizing their fallen nature and the, the mistakes that they made, the sin that they had chosen, the idolatry. Even in that, in their brokenness, calling out to God. And we even have a record of that in Psalm 89, verse 35. It says, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. This is God speaking, God being quoted. I will not lie to David. Verse 36, his offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. It's being claimed here. What were they to think, though, as their homes were destroyed? As they were marched away? Yes, God, we, we know that you're not a liar. But everything that you're telling us will happen is being destroyed right before our eyes. Chapter 89, same chapter, verse 49. This statement is made. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which you swore by your faithfulness. You swore to David. He's speaking of that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that somebody... The seed of David will reign. As we consider the high spots in that rolled out 
parchment or carpet or whatever it is, and we see the high spots, we see another high spot arise in Isaiah 53. And God begins to speak into that very moment as his people are hurting, as, the, as his people need to hear from him. And this is what he says in Isaiah 53. There is coming a Davidic king who will bring salvation to his people. There is coming a Davidic king who will bring salvation to his people. And he will be exalted. He will be back on the throne. But first, he must suffer. But first, that king must suffer. Not because he is sinful, but he will suffer even to the point of death in the place of his people. He will suffer for his people and then, only then will he be exalted and his people redeemed with him. That's the message of Isaiah this morning. God's people don't need to be hopeless. It may seem as though it's impossible for God to raise up the seed of David and to restore that throne. And with man, yes, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's something I think we can glean. I know that we can glean as a church this morning. As you look at the situations that you find yourself in, needing this person's heart to change, praying that God would even change your own, and you knowing yourself and saying, it's impossible that I could even come from this place to this place, that I could get to the next level in this or that. You say, it's impossible. I can't do it. I've beat my head against the wall, and I can't. Never get ahead. Whatever it is, whatever you're facing this morning, know this, that God is a God of the impossible. When things seem hopeless, God is never hopeless. He's never experienced that emotion of desperation. That's the point of this prophecy. The king, the Lord's servant, he is coming. But who is he? And how can he rule if there's no kingdom? The Bible pictures the line of the throne of David as a tree. At the last deportation, at the last time when, when they were dispersed throughout the nations, and the final king was removed. It's as if the tree was cut down and maybe even burned. And so as you look at that stump, you think, well, it's impossible that it could ever grow back. It's impossible that the blessings that were told of that tree will ever be experienced again. A woman hired a landscaper to work in her yard. The landscaper agreed to plant some new stuff and to work on the existing growth and and to just bring it to its former glory, as it were. When he was all finished, he gathered his tools up, put them in his truck, and drove away. And the woman, she comes out. She's so excited to to, to see what the landscaper has done with her yard. It's going to be beautiful. And she looks around. She's just shocked when she looks over at her precious willow tree that has been destroyed. Destroyed. He cut off all the branches and there wasn't even a leaf to speak of left on the tree. She's devastated. She's furious, but she's subdued. So she takes to the Facebook and begins to vent. And there on Facebook, she's relieved to discover from a friend that that tree, though it may appear dead, is not dead at all. In fact, It's all underground, all of its life. And that tree was very much alive. And her friend assured her that it will grow back. And not only will it grow back, but even stronger in the coming year. And so while she had lost all hope that this tree would bring shade the next year, and even exist, 
she found out that she didn't know everything. So while it may look impossible for God to work, it, it may appear that his hands are tied to some degree as uh, in your situation or in the situation of the Jews looking for their deliverer. Listen here. The tree is alive. The tree is alive. It's just underground. God will always keep his promises. In chapter uh, 53, verse 2, there's a, a, a hint at this tree, this stump. Verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. Here the words of God were provided to those who wondered if God was able or even listening. He says, no, there is a a root out of dry ground. That root will spring up a new growth, a new tree. So in verse 2, the Israelites would find great comfort. There was a root, there was a seed. The people of God in those days were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and in faith that that Messiah would come. That root of David would spring up out of the ground. And today we look back towards that person. We look back towards the servant of Yahweh. And when we look back, we see the cross of Christ. You see, who is that suffering servant? Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse 23 speaks to it. Jesus of Nazareth. In chapter 12, having just healed, listen, somebody who is demon-possessed, blind, and unable to speak. Jesus of Nazareth heals him. And all the people that were following him there in, in the presence, they said to one another, they said, can this be the son of David? They were amazed. Can this be the son of David? And you might think, well, that, what, what does that even mean? Well, the son of David. It, they're pointing back to the prophecy in 2 Samuel that God gave to David. 2 Samuel 7. They're pointing even farther back to Genesis chapter 12 and even farther back behind that to Genesis chapter 3. And they're saying, is this him? Is this the deliverer, the righteous king that will come to our aid and help us? Is this who God has sent? And indeed, he had. They were right. It was the Messiah. It was the son of David. The long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. He indeed will reign as king. But remember we said, and as we read, before he reigns, he must first suffer. He must first suffer. I want to talk to you a little bit about the suffering of Christ this morning. There's a few aspects or parts of the nature of the suffering that I want to point to. And the first is this, the surprising nature of his suffering. The surprising nature of his suffering. If you're taking notes, I'll go ahead and give you the the other two. The surprising nature and also the substitutionary nature of his suffering. The substitutionary nature of his suffering. And the third is the successful nature of his suffering. So first, in verses 1 through 3, the surprising nature of his suffering. Toward the beginning of the passage, we read some surprising information about the servant. Uh, at the, actually, at the end of chapter uh, 12, it, in verse 14, it says that many of you were astonished. And in verse 1 of the next chapter, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom of the arm of the Lord has been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected. It's kind of shocking that he would even have people around him hide their faces from him, just embarrassed 
Not wanting to look and make eye contact because it would be awkward. It's not how we would expect the deliverer, the king. Right? When you think of the kings of Israel, even of David, a handsome man, young, attractive. People enjoyed, look, people enjoyed knowing that they had a king like David. They enjoyed that. He, while he was a bit odd and different from Saul, at the same time, he was a man's man. And they enjoyed following this deliverer, in a sense, this king, David. Before him, we have Saul, the tallest in the land, chosen to be the first king of Israel. Why did they choose him? Well, it looked like he should be the king because he was the tallest, right? They had no problem submitting to him. No problem at all. Deliverers are are often dominating, forceful, attractive people with magnetic personalities and they draw people to themselves and convince people to do whatever they want them to do. And if you refuse to follow a dynamic deliverer like that, then you're tossed aside. You don't follow that dynamic delivering king. You're put away. But this man, this servant of Yahweh doesn't fit that mold. He doesn't look like that. The appearance is not what he's all about. As a matter of fact, I think Paul's hymn in Philippians chapter 2, the one uh, Pastor Tim read just a moment ago, I I think it's a reflection of this very passage. I'll read parts of it again to you. Verse 5 of chapter 2 in Philippians, it says, Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In 2019, as we read that, we think, man, that sounds wonderful. I want a deliverer like that. But in 700 B.C., it's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for a humble king. You're looking for somebody that swings a sword and swings it fast and hard. Somebody who's strong that can raise men up to defeat their enemies. You're looking for somebody that's wise and that can keep captive an audience. This is what they were looking for. But then Jesus is told that he will be the, the servant and he will not be much to look at. And it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's surprising if you come from their perspective. So Jews, they were looking for somebody to rescue them from their enemies, to help them escape the suffering that they were experiencing in a foreign land. But Jesus would come to save them from their sin. You don't need a a king with a big sword to save somebody from their sin. You need a lamb. As the Jews knew all too well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 25 Paul speaks of the message of the gospel and he says, but we preach Christ crucified. He says, a stumbling block to the Jews. Imagine building the temple like a Lego kit that God had sent in the mail. As you dump it all out there in the courtyard there in Jerusalem, you begin to spread it all out and you get the map out and you begin to see, okay, we're looking for this piece. It looks like this. And you begin to look around and you say, we're looking for the cornerstone. That's what we need first to get this thing built up and going right. And so they begin to look through all the pieces. Maybe if you're like me, you begin to organize all the pieces out. Okay, all the bent ones that have three spots and then two, they go over here and all the singles go over here and you get it all laid out. And you're trying to figure out how to get this thing started. You can't 
You can't quite get off the ground. You can't quite get going. As a matter of fact, there's just this one giant piece that's in the way and you don't really know what to do with it. You can't push it that way, you can't push it this way, and you can't even get started because this big piece is in the way. And that very piece that is in the way for the Jews as they, in a sense, build the temple, it's the very cornerstone that they need to begin. It's become a stumbling block. Really, it's an offense to them. It's an offense to them, the very cornerstone that God had sent, the Messiah. The word despised here, it's an interesting word. It, it means to consider something or someone to be worthless or unworthy of attention. When we use the word despised, to despise something in 2019, there's a lot of emotional things attached to that. Just almost hatred. That's not necessarily, that's not quite what's being said about my servant here. It's, it's more he's just considered worthless. In fact, it's not considered at all. It's completely overlooked. It's not, I, I hate that person. It's what person? That, that's what's being said of the Messiah. They didn't even see him. It's surprising because at this point, the Messiah doesn't fit the stereotype of the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, they wouldn't know because he doesn't look. The arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord has not been revealed in this way before. And we're not expecting it to look just like this. And so therefore, he was overlooked. He would be overlooked. My question for you this morning as the church would be this. Are you looking, are you still looking for something else? Are you still looking for something else? With what God has given to you, in his word, in the church, are you looking for something more? Something other than Jesus himself? Something other than the Messiah? What else do you need? What do you need in addition to him? Is there something truly missing in your life? A brokenness, a whole? Maybe there really is. Perhaps the Jesus that we preach about in this place, that we celebrate in the one that we worship, perhaps he's no part of your life. Perhaps that's why there's still that hole or that brokenness in your life. Because you, like the Jews in the first century, completely overlook Christ. Is it possible? Are you looking for something else? I alluded to the poetic structure of the book just a moment ago, and I talked about the first part of the book of Isaiah. Well, there's a second part, if there's a first, right? The second part of the book of Isaiah is from uh, 40 to 66. It's 27 chapters. And that second part of the book, 27 chapters, is divided up into three equal sections, so three sections of nine. And the entirety of the second book, the second part of the book, is all about salvation. And so if the first 39 chapters are about destruction, the next 27 are about salvation. We'll see some beauty in the structure. The first nine chapters, the first section of the second part, is about salvation from the enemies. The second part, or the, let's, let's jump to the third. The third part is about salvation in the future. A new Jerusalem. New heavens and a new earth. The middle section is about salvation from sin. 
And there's a bit of a chiastic structure, if you will. If you were to look at it from the, from the, from the, uh, from the aerial view, you'd see that everything is kind of flowing inward to the center. It's all pointing to the center section. And then that center section is made up of, of, of several chapters there, 49 to 57. And the very center of that center section is chapter 53. And if you were to look in the Hebrew, at the very center of that section, so we continue to zoom in, everything's flowing in, flowing out. This one centerpiece, and that very centerpiece is chapter 53, verse 5. And what is it? That He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know anything about the book of Isaiah, you know this, that the destruction that was coming upon the Israelites was not for any other reason but their sin. Their sin against the holy God. That is what God hated. That is what Yahweh was punishing them and destroying them for. To bring them to the place that they would repent. That's the beginning. That's the, that's the, the point of the first 39. And the point of the next 27 is salvation in the midst of that. And not salvation from enemies, not salvation from circumstance, or whether they be finance or whatever, or relational issues, whatever it is, that's not the point. The point of the book of Isaiah is that God will send a Davidic king. And what will he do? Among many things, he will chief. He will redeem them from their sin. So as you look this morning at Jesus... And you say, what can I gain from him? What value is in that man, in my life? Is he a rabbit's foot that I can rub to get this or to get that? He's none of those things. He is this. He is our salvation. And by his wounds, we can be healed. You talk about beauty as you compare. There's no comparison any chapter in the book of Quran, or the book of the Quran, or the book of Mormon, or any other book that is considered to be holy, compared to Isaiah fifty-three verse five, there's no, there's not even a, a, a glimmer, a sliver of hope that we see there. That by His stripes we are healed. Imagine that. This is the nonverbal emphasis of this beautifully divine book. More than victory over your enemies, more than wealth, and more than relief from physical pain, you need peace with God. And this is what Jesus came to bring. And that is what God offers you this morning. He doesn't offer you a painless life, free of difficulty. He doesn't doesn't even offer us happiness this morning. That's not what's on the table. We may experience some of those things as just common grace by God. That is not what he is promising. He is promising that when his people turn to him and repent of their sins, that he will forgive their sins because of the work of the Lamb on the cross. Surprising the nature of Jesus' suffering. There's also the substitutionary nature, nature of his suffering. If you think about it, nature, or, uh, it's natural uh, to experience suffering in life. In fact, in, throughout the, the scriptures we read of suffering as a form of punishment in the Bible of, of some sort. There would be repercussions for sin. 
As a matter of fact, the law says that the soul who sins, it shall die. It teaches that. Ezekiel says, the soul who sins, it shall die. And one might assume that the, the suffering servant of Yahweh then, because he is suffering in chapter 53, that he is the one who has sinned. He is the soul who has sinned. And that is not the case. It's impossible that he would sin. He's the righteous one. He's the deliverer that is coming to deliver his people. And Isaiah says here that he will not suffer for his own sin, but he will suffer for the sins of his people. He'll suffer for the sins of his people. And that's the substitutionary nature of the cross. They thought God's wrath was on Jesus because he had sinned. That's the prophecy. They're going to look at him and think, God has smitten this man because he sinned. We often think that. To some degree, that's true. Some of the suffering that we face in this life is a direct result of our own sin, our own mistakes that we've made. Oftentimes, it's not. It's the result of just sin, and generally speaking, in the fallen world. Yet here, Jesus has no part in any of that. He's not contributed to the fallen nature of this world. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed, broken to bits for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He received chastisement. We received peace. This is the great exchange. By his wounds, we are healed. We receive healing, and he receives suffering. This is a picture of the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. Jesus takes the wrath of God, and we get the grace of God. He takes the death sentence, and we get the everlasting life sentence. And this is what the entire sacrificial system is all about. It's God making it possible for sinful humans to have fellowship with him once again. That God would make it possible for sinful human beings to have fellowship with him once again. That he would die in our place. That's love. That's love. That's sacrifice. That's substitutionary atonement. Another high point in Scripture is the announcement by John at the Jordan River. Speaking of Jesus, he sees him coming, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says to everybody listening, he has a crowd, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's right there. To any self-respecting Jew, they knew what, what John was saying. This is a high point in Scripture. This is the deliverer. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He will be our substitute. He'll trade places with his people. He's not helping them with their problems. Jesus is not helping you with your problems. He's not helping you cope through your life. He's taking all of the wrath of God from his people on himself. And he's paying your debt. He's dying in your place. There's no other way to satisfy the holy demands of a of a just and holy God, you must be punished. The soul that sins, it shall die. But wait. Jesus was pierced for your sins. He was crushed for your iniquities. What joy. Christian, this morning, what else do you need? What else do we need to know this morning? What else do we need to hear? I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask the Lord for for mercy and grace in our suffering and our pain here in this life, but recognize this. What other blessing can we receive? What can top that? There's nothing. If, that, if you don't see that the way that the Bible's presenting it, it's because you have 
something skewed. Your suffering in this present life is somehow worse than the suffering in the next, and that's not true. The Apostle Paul says that what we experience here, whether we be Christians or not, is light and momentary in comparison to what is before us when we exit the temporal and enter the eternal. So much greater, so so much more awesome and terrible what we will face in the next life. What joy? What else do you need? And so Jesus, the substitute, he enters in. If you think about maybe a movie that you've seen, it's a, it's, a, it's a common theme. The incapable hero humorously attempts to rescue the damsel in distress or some of his dear friends and only to be captured himself and tied up sitting there in the dungeon, wherever it is, right next to the person that he tried to rescue. And while it's kind of a humorous situation, if you're in that situation, to be watching, it's humorous. To be in that situation, in reality, it's not helpful. It's dire. That's not what Jesus has done. Jesus both desired to set his people free, to redeem them, but in addition to that, he accomplished it. And that's the successful nature of his suffering. He didn't just suffer. Just to say he was suffering, he doesn't just sit next to us as we suffer. Many Jews over the course of the millennia have thought that very thing, that the Messiah would sit next to them in their suffering and just sympathize with them. And what help is that? What relief is that? It's not what, it's not what we experience in Christ. We see a, a successful nature to his suffering as he truly is victorious and redeems his people back. And the very thing he sought to do, he accomplishes. What's he successful in? What does he accomplish truly for his sheep? Quickly, here's three things. He returns his sheep to, to himself. He returns his sheep to himself In his suffering, he pays for their transgressions. And in his suffering, he removes their iniquity. Let's walk through this quickly. Our memory verse this week, one of them anyway, was 1 Timothy chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 24 and 25. And I'm not going to quote those to you because you might just laugh at me. I'm going to read part of it today. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, Christian. You were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In that memory verse, we see these three things. He returns his sheep, he pays for the transgression, and he removes the iniquity. At the cross, God draws his people to himself. When he's lifted up on that cross, his sheep come to him. My question to you this morning, another is, has Jesus drawn you to himself? Has Jesus drawn you to himself? Have you heard him call to you, come to me and receive forgiveness? Jesus is successfully, let me tell you, drawing people all around the world to himself. Both as he sends his servants out, The gospel is shared, the whisper is heard, and the saints are drawn. Not only does he draw his people, but he also, there on the cross, in his suffering, paid for the transgression of his sheep. We sinned, but he died. And the true Christian died with him and in him. The wrath and justice of God on, on your account has been satisfied by the death of Christ. Think about that. 
That's, what, that's, what, that's where Jesus was successful on the cross. And he's removed iniquity. You see, transgression is sort of what we do. Iniquity is, in a sense, kind of who we are. That's a simple way to explain it, but I think it's helpful. Transgression is like, a, is like, a, is like a, something we've done. Iniquity is like disease. So transgression is a symptom, and iniquity is like a disease. But for the people of God, his sheep, their, their transgressions and their iniquities are taken from them. How helpful is it if a doctor just removes the symptoms that you have? Well, it's, it, it may be helpful for a short period of time, but if your disease, if your situation is still present in your life, you, you long for it to be removed. You long to be rescued from that. How much more if God only were to remove our transgressions at this point and not remove our iniquity as well, the sinfulness just in us, the disease that has overtaken us, that we've fallen into with Adam, that we've chosen, the idolatry that we enjoy, he would remove that from us. This is God's grace to us on the cross. And in his suffering, Jesus removes our transgressions and our suffering. While we're talking about disease and healing, I'll just, I want to just hit on this very quickly, just as in a pastoral sense, I want to share this with you. This, this passage may be confusing to some because it says, and with his wounds we are healed. It says, with his wounds we are healed. And this does not mean that Jesus' death on the cross and victory over sin also translates to you beating cancer. It's not what he's saying here. It's not saying that you're not going to have to have that surgery or you can soon do away with your glasses. Because Jesus' death on the cross, he's not saying by Jesus' wounds we have been healed from our physical ailments. That's not the point of chapter 53. That's not the point of the middle section of that chapter. That's not even the point of Isaiah, that God would heal of some physical sickness. That's not the point. So often this passage can be construed, and possibly even by those who mean well, because in desperation and in hope they cling and they grasp for something that's not been given to them. This is not the promise that God has given to us. As we look through the church, as we look through history, we see that many of God's people have suffered affliction physically. Many of God's people have suffered without healing. And some have received healing, some have, by the grace of God and by His sovereign will, have been given victory in that physical issue, but that's not what God has promised to us. God's not promised us happiness. He's ha- he has promised us joy for those who are in Christ. He's not promised us health, not in this life, but he has promised the, an eternal relationship with him. And this is what we look forward to as Christians. So I'm not saying don't ask for God to heal, not for yourself and for your family and for your friends. Of course, ask for that in faith. But know this, that he has not promised to give that to us. So there's no amount of faith that you need to have increased in order to get God to to, to do something for you. Again, just by way of pastoral care for you, there's a a documentary or a movie that was put out recently. It's called The American Gospel. I encourage you, fathers, get the movie. Find access to the movie. Watch it with your family you're single, it would, it, it's, it's well, well worth your investment to get a hold of that movie, The American Gospel. It's very helpful. 
Beside your greatest need, sin, we do have other needs, right? God cares about those. We are to bring those to him. Recognize this, that forgiveness from sin and a restored relationship with God, our creator, is our chief need. So if you're here today and you're frustrated with God and his lack of care in your life, as it were, what appears to you, consider if you've actually overlooked the greatest gift that, he's, that you could be given, that could be offered. His son as payment for your sins. Church, the Davidic king who will bring salvation to his people, he's come. He's already come. It's Jesus Christ. And he suffered to the point of death in the place of his people, and he was successful in that suffering. And now he is exalted and his redeemed people are with him. They're with him. Verse 13 of 52 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall prosper is what it means. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Ways. Jesus is exalted. But as we close, I want to point to this. As we think of the, briefly, as we think of the exaltation of Jesus. I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for you? How is Jesus exalted? In one way, we see that he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And there, listen, church, he makes intercession for his people. Listen. Imagine this, as we close, Jesus is praying for his church. Imagine that. Has it ever been encouraging to you to hear maybe your pastor pray for you? Maybe odd, but maybe he took your hand, knelt there with you, and prayed a blessing. Maybe you remember a family member doing that with you. Maybe you heard somebody praying for you and they didn't even know you were there. Isn't that a blessing to hear that? To just to see that them interceding for you. How, what a gift it would be to hear that. And I wish the church would do that more. That we would. That I myself would pray with one another. In the presence of each other. But imagine this. Imagine if we could hear Jesus pray for us individually. Imagine what he would say. What would he be saying? And who is he praying to? Remember Jesus praying to the Father on your behalf. What glory. What is he saying? What does he ask for? What's your week look like this week? What have you been through? Where did you feel weak? You didn't have the strength to fight, spiritually speaking. Did you feel defeated? Did you feel marked with iniquity and transgressions? Did your affection for God himself, did it wane? Did you feel like in the week, just of spiritual warfare, that you're weaker now than you were when you left last Sunday? Is that you this morning? Imagine this, that Jesus now, for the believer, for, the, for his saints, he makes intercession for you to God the Father. If that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't lift you up, then what else are you looking for? The God of this world prays for you. He cares for you. If you feel overwhelmed, discouraged in your suffering, know this, that God indeed, while it's not all, Jesus himself, he is with us. And he knows our struggles. And he has met our greatest need. 
forgiveness of sin. And now in our physical suffering, he's with us and he intercedes for us this morning. What glory.